you already know that William Sidney Porter was better known to his readers as O. Henry. But did you know that Mr. Porter was an embezzler? Mm-hmm. In the amount of $854.08. He wrote several of his stories while serving his prison sentence. We present two of these in this episode, both with the theme of uh, starvation. It'll be all right. Please, tuck in and enjoy first the skylight room followed by the green door. First, Mrs. Parker would show you the double parlors. You would not dare to interrupt her description of their advantages and of the merits of the gentleman who had occupied them for eight years. Then, you would manage to stammer forth the confession that you were neither a doctor nor a dentist. Mrs. Parker's manner of receiving the admission was such that you could never afterward entertain the same feeling towards your parents, who had neglected to train you up in one of the professions that fitted Mrs. Parker's parlors. Next, you ascended one flight of stairs and looked at the second floor back at $8. Convinced by her second floor manner that it was worth the $12 that Mr. Tuesenberry always paid for it until he left to take charge of his brother's orange plantation in Florida, near Palm Beach, where Mrs. McIntyre always spent the winters, that had the double front room with private bath, you managed to babble that you wanted something still cheaper. If you survived Mrs. Parker's scorn, you were taken to look at Mr. Skidder's large hall room on the third floor. Mr. Skidder's room was not vacant. He wrote plays and smoked cigarettes in it all day long. But every room hunter was made to visit his room to admire the lambrequins. After each visit, Mr. Skidder, from the fright caused by possible eviction, would pay something on his rent. Then, oh, then, if you still stood on one foot with your hot hand clench, clutching, clutching the three moist dollars in your pocket and hoarsely proclaimed your hideous and culpable poverty, Never more would Mrs. Parker be Cicerone of yours. She would honk loudly the word Clara. She would show you her back and march downstairs. Then Clara the maid, the maid, uh -huh, would escort you up to the carpeted ladder that served for the fourth flight and show you the skylight room. It occupied seven by eight feet of floor space in the middle of the hall. On each side of it was a dark lumber closet or storeroom. In it was an iron cot, a washstand, and a chair. A shelf was the dresser. Its four bare walls seemed to close in upon you like the sides of a coffin. 
Your hand crept to your throat. You gasped. You looked up as from a well and breathed once more. Through the glass of the little skylight, you saw a square of blue infinity. Two dollars, sir, Clara would say in her half-contemptuous, half-tuscogenial tones. One day, Miss Leeson came hunting for a room. She carried a typewriter, made to be lugged around by a much larger lady. She was a very little girl, with eyes and hair that had kept on growing after she had stopped, and that always looked as if they were saying, oh, goodness me, why didn't you keep up with us? Mrs. Parker showed her the double parlors. Now, in this closet, she said, one could keep a skeleton, or an anesthetic, or coal. Oh, um, but I'm neither a doctor nor a dentist, said Miss Leeson, with a shiver. Mrs. Parker gave her the incredulous, pitying, sneering, icy stare that she kept for those who failed to qualify as doctors or dentists and led the way to the second floor back. Eight dollars, said Miss Leeson. Oh dear me, I'm not heady, even if I do look green. I'm just a poor little working girl. Show me something higher and lower. Mr. Skidder jumped and strewed the floor with cigarette stubs at the rap on his door. Excuse me, Mr. Skidder said Mrs. Parker, with her demon's smile at his pale looks. I didn't know you were in. I asked the lady to have a look at your lambrequins. Oh, yes, they're, they're too lovely for anything, said Miss Leeson, smiling in exactly the way the angels do. After they had gone, Mr. Skidder got very busy erasing the tall, black-haired heroine from his latest, unproduced, play and inserted a small roguish one with heavy bright hair and vivacious features. Anna held. She'll jump at it, said Mr. Skidder to himself, putting his feet up against the lamrequins and disappearing in a cloud of smoke like an aerial cuttlefish. Presently, the toxin call of Clara sounded to the world the state of Miss Leeson's purse. A dark goblin seized her, mounted a Stygian stairway, thrust her into a vault with a glimmer of light in its top, and muttered the menacing and cabalistic words, Two dollars. I'll take it, sighed Miss Leeson, sinking down upon the squeaky iron bed. Every day, Miss Leeson went out to work. At night, she brought home papers with handwriting on them and made copies with her typewriter. Sometimes she had no work at night, and then she would sit on the steps of the high stoop with the other roomers. Miss Leeson was not intended for a skylight room when the plans were drawn for her creation. 
She was gay-hearted and full of tender, whimsical fancies. Once, she let Mr. Skidder read to her three acts of his great, unpublished comedy, uh, entitled, It's No Kid, or The Heir of the Subway. There was rejoicing among the gentlemen rumors whenever Miss Leeson had time to sit on the steps for an hour or two. But Miss Longnecker, the tall blonde who taught in a public school and said, well, really, to everything you said, sat on the top step and sniffed. And Miss Dorn, who shot at the moving ducks at Coney every Sunday and worked in a department store, sat on the bottom step and sniffed. Miss Leeson sat on the middle step and the men would quickly group around her, especially Mr. Skidder, who had cast her in his mind for the star part in a private, romantic, unspoken drama in real life. And especially Mr. Hoover, who was 45, fat, flush, and foolish. And especially very young Mr. Evans, who set up a hollow cough <coughs> to induce her to ask him to leave off cigarettes. The men voted her the funniest and jolliest ever. But the sniffs on the top step and the lower step were implacable. I pray you to let the drama halt while chorus stalks to the footlights, drops an epicedian tear upon the fatness of Mr. Hoover, tune the pipes to the tragedy of tallow, the bane of bulk, the calamity of corpulence. Tried out, Falstaff might have rendered more romance to the ton than would have Romeo's rickety ribs to the ounce. A lover may sigh, but he must not puff. To the train of Momus are the fat men remanded. In vain beats the faithfulest heart above a 52-inch belt. Avant, Hoover. Hoover, 45. Flush and foolish. Might carry off Helen herself. Hoover, 45. Flush foolish and fat, is meat for perdition. There was never a chance for you, Hoover. As Mrs. Parker's rumors sat thus one summer's evening, Miss Leeson looked up into the firmament and cried with her little gay laugh, Why, there's Billy, Billy Jackson. I can see him from down here, too. All looked up some at the windows of skyscrapers, some casting about for an airship Jackson-guided? It's that star, explained Miss Leeson, pointing with a tiny finger. Not the big one that twinkles. The, the steady blue near one. I can see it every night through my skylight. I named it Billy Jackson. Well, really, said Miss Longnecker. I didn't know you were an astronomer, Miss Leeson. Oh, yes, said the small stargazer. I know as much as any of them about the style of sleeves they're going to wear next fall in Mars. Oh, well, really, said Miss Longnecker. The star you refer to is Gamma of the constellation Cassiopeia. 
It is nearly of the second magnitude, and its meridian passages. Oh, said the very young Mr. Evans. I think, I think Billy Jackson is a much better name for it. Same here, said Mr. Hoover, loudly breathing defiance to Miss Longnecker. I think Miss Leeson has just as much right to name stars as any of those astrologers had. Oh, well, really, said Miss Longnecker. I wonder whether it's a shooting star, remarked Miss Dorn. I hit nine ducks and a rabbit out of ten in the gallery at Coney Sunday. He doesn't show up very well from down here, said Miss Leeson. You ought to see him from my room. You know, you can see stars even in the daytime from the bottom of a well. At night, my room is like the shaft of a coal mine, and it makes Billy Jackson look like the big diamond pin that night fastens her kimono with. There came a time after that when Miss Leeson brought no formidable papers home to copy. And when she went out in the morning, instead of working, she went from office to office and let her heart melt away in the drip of cold refusals transmitted through insolent office boys. This went on. There came an evening when she wearily climbed Mrs. Parker's stoop at the hour when she always returned from her dinner at the restaurant, but she had had no dinner. As she stepped into the hall, Mr. Hoover met her and seized his chance. He asked her to marry him and his fatness hovered above her like an avalanche. She dodged and caught the balustrade. He tried for her hand, and she raised it and smote him weakly in the face. Step by step, she went up, dragging herself by the railing. She passed Mr. Skidder's door as he was red-inking a stage direction for Myrtle Delorme. Miss Leeson. In his unaccepted comedy to pirouette across the stage from left to the side of the count. Up the carpeted ladder she crawled at last and opened the door of the skylight room. She was too weak to light the lamp or to undress. She fell upon the iron cot, her fragile body scarcely hollowing the worn springs. And in that Erebus of a room, she slowly raised her heavy eyelids and smiled. For Billy Jackson was shining down on her, calm and bright and constant through the skylight. There was no world about her. She was sunk in a pit of blackness. But that small square of pallid light framing the star that she had so whimsically and oh so ineffectually named, Miss Longnecker must be right. It was Gamma of the constellation Cassiopeia and not 
Billy Jackson. And yet she could not let it be Gamma. As she lay on her back, she tried twice to raise her arm. The third time she got two thin fingers to her lips and blew a kiss out of the black pit to Billy Jackson. Her arm fell back limply. Goodbye, Billy, she murmured faintly. You're millions of miles away and you won't even twinkle once. But you kept where I could see you most of the time up there. And there wasn't anything else but darkness to look at, didn't you? Millions of miles. Goodbye, Billy Jackson. Clara, the maid found the door locked at 10 the next day, and they forced it open. Vinegar and the slapping of wrists and burnt feathers proving of no avail. Someone ran to phone an ambulance. In due time, it backed up to the door with much gong clanging and the capable young medico in his white linen coat, ready, active, confident, with his smooth face half debonair, half grim, danced up the steps. Ambulance call to 49, he said briefly. What's the trouble? Oh, yes, doctor, sniffed Mrs. Parker, as though her trouble, that there should be trouble in the house, was the greater. I can't think what can be the matter with her. Nothing we could do would bring her to. It's a young woman, uh, Miss Elsie, oh, yes, a Miss Elsie Leeson. Never before in my house. What room? cried the doctor in a terrible voice to which Mrs. Parker was a stranger. The skylight room. It, evidently the ambulance doctor was familiar with the location of skylight rooms. He was gone up the stairs four at a time. Mrs. Parker followed slowly as her dignity demanded. On the first landing, she met him coming back bearing the astronomer in his arms. He stopped and let loose the practiced scalpel of his tongue, not loudly. Gradually, Mrs. Parker crumbled as a stiff garment that slips down from a nail. Ever afterwards, there remained crumples in her mind and body. Sometimes her curious rumors would ask, what the doctor had said to her. Hmm. Let that be, she would answer. If I can get forgiveness for having heard it, I will be satisfied. The ambulance physician strode with his burden through the pack of hounds that followed the curiosity chase, and even they fell back along the sidewalk, abashed, for his face was that of one who bears his own dead they noticed that he did not lay down upon the bed prepared for it in the ambulance the form that he carried, and all that he said was, Drive like hell, Wilson, to the driver. That is all. Is it a story? In the next morning's paper, I saw a little news item, and the last sentence of it may help you, as it helped me, to weld the incidents together.
It recounted the reception into Bellevue Hospital of a young woman who had been removed from number 49 East Street, suffering from debility induced by starvation. And it concluded with these words. Dr. William Jackson, the ambulance physician who attended the case, says the patient will recover. The Green Door Suppose you should be walking down Broadway after dinner with 10 minutes allotted to the consummation of your cigar while you were choosing between mm, a diverting tragedy and something serious in the way of vaudeville. Suddenly a hand is laid upon your arm. You turn to look into the thrilling eyes of a beautiful woman, wonderful in diamonds and Russian sables. She thrusts hurriedly into your hand an extremely hot buttered roll, flashes out a tiny pair of scissors, snips off the second button of your overcoat, meaningly ejaculates the word parallelogram, and swiftly flies down a cross street, looking back fearfully over her shoulder. That would be pure adventure. Would you accept it? Mm, not you. You would flush with embarrassment. You would sheepishly drop the roll and continue down Broadway, fumbling feebly for that missing button. This you would do unless you are one of the blessed few in whom the pure spirit of adventure is not dead. True adventurers have never been plentiful. They who are set down in print as such have been mostly businessmen with newly invented methods. They have been out after the things they wanted, golden fleeces, holy grails, lady love, treasures, crowns, and fame. The true adventurer goes forth aimlessly and uncalculating to meet and greet unknown fate. A fine example was the prodigal son when he started back home. Half adventurers, brave and splendid figures, have been numerous. From the Crusades to the Palisades, they have enriched the arts of history and fiction and the trade of historical fiction. But each of them had a prize to win, a goal to kick, an axe to grind, a race to run, a new thrust in tears to deliver, a name to carve, a crow to pick. So, they were not followers of true adventure. In the big city, the twin spirits, romance and adventure, are always abroad seeking worthy wooers. As we roam the streets, they slyly peep at us and challenge us in 20 different guises. Without knowing why, we look up suddenly to see a window in that window, a face that seems to belong to our gallery of intimate portraits. In a sleeping thoroughfare, we hear a cry of agony and fear 
coming from an empty and shuttered house. Instead of at our familiar curb, a cab driver deposits us before a strange door, which one, with a smile, opens for us and bids us enter. A slip of paper written upon flutters down to our feet from the high lattices of chance. We exchange glances of instantaneous hate, affection, and fear with hurrying strangers in the passing crowds. A sudden souse of rain and our umbrella may be sheltering the daughter of the full moon and first cousin of the sidereal system. At every corner, handkerchiefs drop, fingers beckon, eyes besiege, and the lost, the lonely, the rapturous, the mysterious, the perilous, changing clues of adventure are slipped into our fingers. But few of us are willing to hold and follow them. We are grown stiff with the ramrod of convention down our backs. We pass on, and someday we come at the end of a very dull life to reflect that our romance has been a pallid thing of a marriage or two, a satin rosette kept in a safe deposit drawer and a lifelong feud with a steam radiator. Rudolf Steiner was a true adventurer. Few were the evenings on which he did not go forth from his hall bedchamber in search of the unexpected and the egregious. The most interesting thing in life seemed to him to be what might lie just around the next corner. Sometimes his willingness to tempt fate led him into strange paths. Twice he had spent the night in a station house. Again and again he had found himself the dupe of ingenious and mercenary tricksters. His watch and money had been the price of one flattering allurement. But with undiminished ardor, he picked up every glove cast before him into the merry lists of adventure. One evening, Rudolph was strolling along a cross-town street in the older central part of the city. Two streams of people filled the sidewalks, the home hurrying and that restless contingent that abandons home for the specious welcome of the thousand-candle-power tableau d'eau. The young adventurer was of pleasing presence and moved serenely and watchfully. By daylight, he was a salesman in a piano store. He wore his tie drawn through a topaz ring instead of fastened with a stick pin. And once he had written to the editor of a magazine that Junie's Love Test by Miss Libby had been the book that had most influenced his life. During his walk, a violent chattering of teeth in a glass case on the sidewalk seemed at first to draw his attention with a qualm to a restaurant before which it was set. But a second glance revealed the electric letters of a dentist's sign high above the next door. A giant man, fantastically dressed in a red embroidered coat, yellow trousers, and a military cap, discreetly distributed cards to those of the passing crowd who consented to take them. This mode of 
dentistic. Advertising was a common sight to Rudolph. Usually he passed the dispenser of the dentist's cards without reducing his store. But tonight, the man slipped one into his hand so deftly that he retained it there, smiling a little at the successful feat. When he had traveled a few yards further, he glanced at the card indifferently. Surprised, he turned it over and looked again with interest. One side of the card was blank. On the other was written, in ink, three words. The Green Door. And then Rudolph saw, three steps in front of him, a man throw down the card he'd been given as he passed. Rudolph picked it up. It was printed with a dentist's name and address and the usual schedule of plate work and bridge work and crowns and specious promises of painless operations. The adventurous piano salesman halted at the corner and considered. Then he crossed the street, walked down a block, recrossed, and joined the upward current of people again. Without seeming to notice the man as he passed the second time, he carelessly took the card that was handed him. Ten steps away, he inspected it. In the same handwriting that appeared on the first card, the green door was inscribed upon it. Three or four cards were tossed to the pavement by pedestrians both following and leading him. These fell blank side up. Rudolph turned them over. Everyone bore the printed legend of the dental parlors. Rarely did the arch sprite adventure need to beckon twice to Rudolf Steiner, his true follower, but twice it had been done, and the quest was on. Rudolf walked slowly back to where the giant man stood by the case of rattling teeth. This time as he passed, he received no card. In spite of his gaudy and ridiculous garb, the man displayed a natural dignity as he stood offering the cards suavely to some, allowing others to pass unmolested. Every half minute, he chanted a harsh, unintelligible phrase akin to the jabber of car conductors and grand opera. And not only did he withhold a card this time, but it seemed to Rudolph that he received from the shining and massive countenance a look of cold, almost contemptuous disdain. Ooh, the luck stung. The look stung the adventurer. He read in it a silent accusation that he had been found wanting. Whatever the mysterious written words on the cards might mean, the man had selected him twice from the throng for their recipient, and now seemed to have condemned him as deficient in the wit and spirit to engage the enigma. Standing aside from the rush, the young man made a rapid estimate of the building in which he conceived that his adventure must lie. Five stories high, it rose. A small restaurant occupied the basement. The first floor, now closed, seemed to house a millinery or furs. 
The second floor, by the winking electric lights, was the dentist's. Above this, a polyglot babble of signs struggled to indicate the abodes of palmists, dressmakers, musicians, and doctors. Still, higher up, draped curtains and milk bottles white on the windowsills proclaimed the regents of domesticity. After concluding his survey, Rudolph walked briskly up the high flight of stone steps into the house. Up two flights of the carpeted stairway, he continued, and at its top, paused. The hallway there was dimly lighted by two pale jets of gas, one far to his right, the other nearer to his left. He looked toward the nearer light and saw, within its wan halo, a green door. For one moment he hesitated, and then he seemed to see the contumelious sneer of that juggler of cards. And then he walked straight to the green door and knocked against it. Moments like those that passed before his knock was answered measure the quick breath of true adventure. What might not be behind those green panels? Gamesters at play? Cunning rogues baiting their traps with subtle skill? Beauty in love with courage and thus planning to be sought by it? Danger, death, love, disappointment, ridicule. <laughs> Any of these might respond to that Temerarious rap. A faint rustle was heard inside, and the door slowly opened. A girl not yet twenty stood there, white-faced and tottering. She loosed the knob and swayed weakly, groping with one hand. Rudolph caught her and laid her on a faded couch that stood against the wall. He closed the door and took a swift glance around the room by the light of a flickering gas jet. Mute but extreme poverty was the story that he read. The girl lay still, as if in a faint. Rudolph looked around the room excitedly for a barrel. People must be rolled upon a barrel who, oh no, no, that was for drowned persons. He began to fan her with his hat. Ah, that was successful, for he struck her nose with the brim of his derby and she opened her eyes. And then the young man saw that hers, indeed, was the one missing face from his heart's gallery of intimate portraits. The frank gray eyes, the little nose, turning pertly outward. The chestnut hair, curling like the tendrils of a pea vine, seemed the right end and reward for all his wonderful adventures. But the face was woefully thin and pale. The girl looked at him calmly and then smiled. Fainted, didn't I? She asked weakly. Well, who wouldn't? You try going without anything to eat for three days and see. 
Himmel! exclaimed Rudolph, jumping up. Wait till I come back. He dashed out the green door and down the stairs. In twenty minutes he was back again, kicking at the door with his toe for her to open it. With both arms, he hugged an array of wares from the grocery and the restaurant. On the table he laid them, bread and butter, cold meats, cakes, pies, pickles, oysters, a roasted chicken, a bottle of milk, and one red-hot tea. This is ridiculous, said Rudolph blusteringly. To go without eating, you must quit making elections, election bets of this kind. Supper is ready. He helped her to a chair at the table and asked, Is there a cup for the tea? On the shelf by the window, she answered, and then when he turned again with the cup, he saw her with eyes shining rapturously, beginning upon a huge dill pickle that she rooted out from the paper bags with a woman's unerring instinct. He took it from her, laughingly, and poured the cup full of milk. Drink that first, he ordered, and then you shall have some tea, and then a chicken wing, and if you're very good, you shall have a pickle tomorrow. And now, if you will allow me to be your guest, we'll have supper. He drew up the other chair. The tea brightened the girl's eyes and brought back some of her color. She began to eat with a sort of dainty ferocity, like some starved wild animal. She seemed to regard the young man's presence and the aid he had rendered her as a natural thing, not as though she undervalued the conventions, but as one whose great stress gave her the right to put aside the artificial the human. But gradually, with the return of strength and comfort, came also a sense of the little conventions that belong, and she began to tell him her little story. It was one of a thousand such, as the city yawns at every day, the shop girl's story of insufficient wages, further reduced by fines that go to swell the store's profits of time lost through illness, and then of lost positions, lost hope, and the knock of the adventurer upon the green door. But to Rudolph, the history sounded as big as the Iliad, or the crisis in Junie's love test. To think of you going through all that, he exclaimed. It was something fierce, said the girl solemnly. And you have no relatives or friends in the city. None whatever. I'm all alone in the world, too, said Rudolph, after a pause. I am glad of that, said the girl promptly. And somehow it pleased the man to hear that she approved of his bereft condition. Very suddenly her eyelids dropped, and she sighed deeply. Whew. I'm awfully sleepy, she said, and I feel so good. Rudolph rose and took his hat. Then I'll say good night. A long night's sleep will be fine for you. He held out his hand, and she took it and said good night. But her eyes asked a question so eloquently, so frankly, and pathetically, that he answered it with words. Oh, I'm coming back tomorrow. To see how you're getting along. You can't get rid of me so easily.
then at the door, as though the way of his coming had been so much less important than the fact that he had come, she asked, How did you come to knock at my door? He looked at her for a moment, remembering the cards, and felt a sudden jealous pain. What if they had fallen into other hands as adventurous as his? Quickly he decided that she must never know the truth. He would never let her know that he was aware of the strange expedient to which she had been driven by her great distress. Oh, one of our piano tuners lives in this house, he said. I knocked at your door by mistake. The last thing he saw in the room before the green door closed with her was her smile. At the head of the stairway, he paused and looked curiously about him, and then he went along the hallway to the other end and, coming back, ascended to the floor above and continued his, puzzles, his puzzled explorations. Every door that he found in the house was painted green. Wondering, he descended to the sidewalk. The fantastic man was still there. Rudolph confronted him with his two cards in his hand. Will you tell me why you gave me these cards and what they mean? He asked. In a broad, good-natured grin, the man exhibited a splendid advertisement. Why, there it is. Point, he said, pointing down the street. I expect you're a little late for the first act, though. Looking the way he pointed, Rudolph saw above the entrance to a theater the blazing electric sign of its new play, The Green Door. I'm informed it's a first-rate show, sir. Well, it's the, the agent presented me with a dollar and asked me to distribute a few of his cards along with the doctor's. May I offer you one of the doctor's cards, sir? At the corner of the block in which he lived, Rudolph stopped for a glass of beer and a cigar. When he had come out with his lighted weed, he buttoned his coat, pushed back his hat, and said stoutly to the lamp post on the corner, All the same, I believe it was the hand of fate that doped out the way for me to find her. Which conclusion, under the circumstances, certainly admits Rudolf Steiner to the ranks of the true followers of romance and adventure.